Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now someone say something funny for the intro. That oh, I've got to call the landlord. Dave's a bitch. One of them will do. It is Monday, which means it's time for the weekend review here on the front three with me, Adam Bullwood. Lawrence McKenna's here as well. Hey, hello. Dave O'Brien's here. Goddamn Skype. Goddamn Skype. As is Nico Morales. How you doing? Doing very well, guys. We are here to talk to you about all the weekend's football. Of course, first off, we're going to be talking about West Ham sacking Slavin Bilic. Chris Hennage will be joining us on the line to talk about David Moyes, the potential replacement for Bilic at the London Stadium. We'll also be talking all the big action from the weekend, including Manchester United against Chelsea, Arsenal's defeat to Manchester City at the Etihad Stadium. We'll also be talking Everton, David Unsworth's big win over Watford 3-2 may mean he's not David Dunsworth, if you will, although he may be if the reports are to be believed and Sam Allardyce is coming in. We'll also be talking whether Tony Pulis will be the next manager to receive his P45. Before all that, though, there's only one place to start, Dave, and it is the man who has been sacked today is Slaven Bilic, let go by West Ham, finally, after their 4-1 defeat to Liverpool at the weekend, you have to say this is long overdue. Yeah, I think so. I think that was a long time coming. I was surprised. I thought they'd keep him to the end of the season and then work on a replacement there because the market, there isn't that many managers that want a job right now. We think you know Thomas Tuchel's probably going to take the year out, same with Carlo Ancelotti. I think they're the only two managers I can think of that without jobs right now that could take West Ham to the level that they want as a club. So it seems a bit strange that he's gone and now they're going to get David Moyes, which is absolutely bonkers. Um, I think he's really outdated. You know, we talk about Sam Allardyce and Tony Pulis having a style of football that still kind of works, but it's a bit bit outdated in attacking sense. David Moyes is next level outdated. So it's not going to be a good uh, rest of season for, for West Ham, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, and I feel sorry for their fans. Sorry, guys. Do you feel sorry for Billich at all? Nico, I mean, I think it come to the point where, you know, the fans were the fans were fed up essentially, and it was time for him to go. Yeah, I think as Dave said, you know, Slavin Bilic after that first season, uh, that that first very successful season, didn't do much to right the ship. So I don't necessarily feel bad for him, but I, I you know, yet again, as as Dave is saying correctly, there, um, you know, my managerial 
knowledge of of available coaches isn't isn't maybe as as in depth as it should be. But I just feel like there are probably better options out there uh, outside of David Moyes. So I can't really understand that position because it seems like you're going from a bad position to a worse position with David Moyes. So. I don't. I don't really know. Understand what the club is doing. Stuart Pearce as well, the uh, the rumored assistant manager who's coming in. So uh, yeah, potentially not the best move by West Ham. Let's talk to Chris Hennage now, though, to get his thoughts on David Moyes, potentially the next West Ham manager. Chris Hennage, how's it going? No bad, mate. How are you? Very well. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, David Moyes, uh, seemingly set to be appointed by West Ham uh, as their new manager the successor to Slavon Bilic. Uh, the question on everyone's lips, though, Chris, is why? I mean, that's a, a very good question. Um, you have to think realistically. It's because they've looked at the landscape and, and the most viable candidates that have even some semblance of, of Premier League experience uh, are Sam Allardyce and David Moyes. And they've, they've done the Sam Allardyce experiment before. Yeah, I tried that one. And, and you have to think... That really his his stock once he left Palace was actually quite high, having kept Palace and and Sunderland, which was the bigger job I think, um, in the Premier League. So so why would he want to come back unless it was for an obscene amount of money? If reports are to be believed, West Ham were rejected by firstly Carlo Ancelotti, uh, Sean Dyche as well, um, a very highly rated manager in the Premier League these days, uh, Paolo Souza as well as Ronald Koeman before uh, they managed to find an agreement with David Moyes. So it's clear he wasn't the first choice. Um, clearly not many West Ham fans' first choice as well. And when you look at it now, Chris, this is a manager that, despite his time at Everton, uh, his largely very successful time at Everton, I think it's fair to say, he's now failed in three successive jobs, Manchester United, Real Sociedad, and of course most recently Sunderland, which I think uh, I think we can describe that as an absolute disaster. Yeah, it, it was. Um, I mean, he was linked to, to Aston Villa as well at one point, I think. Um, again, when they were struggling, I think the, the concern I have is, yes, the Everton job is is an instance where he did well. And, and I saw a great stat that he's won more LMA Manager of the Year awards than, than Wenger and Mourinho combined. Wow. But the, the more pressing thing here is those last three jobs, the clubs all had fairly different expectations in terms of where they wanted to finish and what they wanted to achieve. And he looked a bad fit at all of them. He didn't seem the type of inspirational leader to turn Sunderland round. At Sociedad, it was, looked like a bad cultural fit and that he wasn't uh, forward-thinking or, or expansive enough to keep up with, with the team that had you know mid-table and above aspirations. And for Man United, he couldn't handle the pressure, I think, first and foremost. He didn't seem to know how to dictate a game and, and again, take the lead, um, be that figuratively or literally. Um, and, and overall, just the the sort of the mentality, to, to use a, a Lawrence McKenna phrase, that you need for a club like Manchester United. He seemed to miss that all the time. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's a concern if you're a West Ham fan. I don't think he's the, the safe pair of hands, in inverted commas, that he once was. Of course, we get to receive confirmation that Moyes will join the club. Uh, some suggestion he, he could be hired as an interim manager, perhaps until the end of the season. I mean, does that make it any more palatable, do you think, to West Ham fans? Do you think he could, could do a job here and, and steer them away from the relegation zone at least? I, I mean, this is the thing. I, I wasn't thinking too long term 
when his name was mentioned. My concern is keeping them in the the Premier League at this stage um, because that has to be their pressing concern. Uh, they've got the stadium, which again they're paying I think two million a year for in rent. But I think if if you go down, that place becomes a, a shell. I don't think fans turn up at all. Um, you, you're going to need something spectacular to in, inspire a, a turnaround once you're in the championship. And and to be fair, West Ham have been in the championship, I would say, fairly recently. Um, and it wasn't easy for for Big Sam to get them out of that mess. He did, but it, again, it wasn't easy. And I and I think you look at their squad. Um, what their projected payroll would be for that squad. You're going to have to ship a lot of guys out um, at a significant loss. No one's paying $25 million for Arnautovic. Hernandez probably keeps his value because of who he is. Um, but you've got the likes of Zabaleta, who I think is on a two-year contract. I could be wrong on that one. Um, but Winston Reid is on good wages. He's going to want to stay in the Premier League. It's, it, it really is. You can't overstate the the catastrophic mess that caused if West Ham are relegated. And and that's my concern right now is that I don't know if he redresses that issue because at Sunderland, yes, he had a lesser squad, but it was essentially the same job. It was trying to inspire out of format, out of confidence players. And he couldn't do it. If anything, he threw them right into a relegation battle by saying as much after two or three games that, yeah, we're, we're going to be near the bottom this season. It's, I mean, this is the thing. I think David Moyes will receive uh, a lot of the the flack, if it, if you will, from West Ham fans if he is indeed appointed. But surely this speaks to the mismanagement from the club's hierarchy at a board level. I can't help but think Slavon Bilic probably should have been dismissed at the end of last season. Uh, probably the club's win over Tottenham uh, gave him that stay of execution. But if they had been braver there and moved on from Slavon Bilic, they potentially could have brought in someone like Marco Silva, who was available, ended up going to Watford and is showing just how good he is. They could have brought in the sort of manager who could have injected the fresh ideas that they so desperately need instead of now wasting a season where Bilic is dismissed uh, 11 games in, David Moyes is being brought in seemingly on a short-term basis until the end of the season. It seems obvious we should be looking past the managers here and pointing the fingers at the owners for the mess West Ham find themselves in. It does, and that, and that's the concern, is that this is not... Uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, as as the Americans say, this is all things that seem painfully obvious um, at the start of the summer. I mean, there was talk that the the win against West Ham is what kept Billich in the job, but there was was issues where I think, I mean, Dave I think said that he he didn't think Billich would last long um, when he got the job anyway, and and I've been saying for a while that they've been bereft of ideas and defensive structure. So the fact that they decided to persist, reinvest, you could say, if, you, if you're trying to, to be positive, well, you know, that's backing a manager. I don't see the point, though, if it if it was in, as inept as it was in that second half of last season, um, whereas there was a suitable, I would say, intelligent candidate in Marco Silva available. Um, I would even argue, if, if it's the start of the summer, the potential candidates you've got at... Um, at your disposal widens itself significantly because clubs then have the time to themselves bring a new manager in. Whereas at this stage, I don't think any club in the championship would be 
you know, relegation places aside, is is going to want to dispense with their coach, even if it secures them a, a fairly decent uh, compensation fee, and that's the problem that West Ham have got. And and you look at the summer with the the Carvalho saga and everything that that fell through with that, and the the sporting, I think it was the sporting chairman and or owner who who made remarks about. Um, the West Ham owners and the way they conducted themselves and the fact they threw Bilic under the bus then saying that he turned them down when he didn't. I don't think the Renato Sanchez deal makes a massive amount of difference if he joins, but Carvalho might have given them some semblance of, of structure in midfield. But even then, his decisions against Liverpool just didn't make sense. And I think if you talk to any West Ham fans or if you watch any of the, the fan channels that float about and things like that that give you these sound bites, these problems are not overnight developments. These have been going on from the turn of the year and pretty much since Pye left, you can start to see that decline whereby players that were carrying the piano for Pye to play suddenly had to do more and didn't really know how to defend and attack because they'd been used to to being the defensive cog of the team and he was the one that, that created and s- sat there as the fulcrum of the, the team in the final third Finally uh, a eulogy if you will for Slaven Bilic we mentioned in there that you know his time had come to an end at West Ham I think most fans were, were not pleased to see him go but felt that there were no signs that he could turn things around. At the same time the West Ham manager for the most points won per game in the Premier League era at the club um, is there any degree of sympathy for you for Billich? I mean, what do you think is next for uh, for the former West Ham manager? Well, I mean, it was Neil Young that said it's better to burn out than fade away. Um, <laughs> I'm not too sure which which one Billich really did. I mean, he, you know, the highs were high. Seventh, 11th is not a terrible finish in the league, but the lows were pretty low at the same time. And I think ultimately, if you look at his time at, at Besiktas in Turkey, you see a, a fairly similar situation whereby the the good start does eventually fade away. And I think for him, yes, he was a, a I think a very uh, very respectful coach. I think he was someone that carried himself with immense dignity. Um, but on the pitch, they just seemed to lack any real semblance of, of tactical idea or identity. And and you watch them even against. Liverpool, I think, you know, if there's one criticism that's been levelled at Klopp, it's that sometimes he can be a little bit two-dimensional with his his tactics and, and a lack of versatility. It, it was so easy for him to pick them off on on Saturday. You know, the change to four four two, it it pretty much meant that uh, Liverpool could adapt what was a four three three to a bit more of a four two four and just break on the counter attack and. I think when you watch that game back, you, you kind of knew it was the end, not because they were beaten 4-1. You can be beaten 4-1 and, and be you know, just outdone by class, but it was the ease with which Liverpool had that victory um, that I think really did hammer in the final nail of, of the, the Slavon Bilic tenure. Mm, uh, the nail indeed has been hammered in. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Where can the people find you before the next podcast? At K Hennage or on Unibet, where I will be uh, writing about the the very perilous position David Moyes' career sits in with this latest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Sure. Interesting stuff there from Chris. Uh, great stuff. Do go and follow him at Chris Hennage. Uh, I mean, we haven't spoken much about Liverpool. Lawrence, uh, of course, the team that condemned Slavon Bilic to the sacking. Um, Liverpool fans talking a lot about a new system, potentially, new tactics for Jurgen Klopp in this game that resulted in a comfortable win. Do you mean talking about looking more flexible as a side? Mm, yeah, that seems uh, to be what they're a little bit excited about. That's what some people seem to be talking about. I guess um, it, it's great to be flexible against a team that allows you to be flexible. I think Liverpool have tried it in the past and it's looked a lot more aimless um, than it did uh, that did on the weekend against West Ham. I guess part of that is also having the personnel um, in order to put that together. They had great pace on the break, and I think that really helped them. Uh, they got Mane, Firmino, and Salah is probably his preferred front three great podcast. So it was it was a good weekend for Liverpool overall. I think I've had sort of say Chamberlain can score and also have a good game. Then I think there's real positives there. It was also a weekend where Liverpool did not have um, Jordan Henderson on the pitch. Um, and a lot of people saw that as a great uh, positive as well. Um, there's still a lot of issues with this Liverpool team. I, you know, you can win 4-1 against West Ham. They're a team in crisis. Um, but somehow they seem to be able to keep up with the teams just ahead of them. They're not a million miles off uh, the, the pack that they seem to be chasing, which is, let me find the table for you. Uh, Liverpool are only three points behind Chelsea, four points behind Spurs, and actually four points behind United as well. So... I mean, as far as everyone's saying, we seem, we seem to be seeing Liverpool have a terrible season. Um, and they're only four points off second place. Lawrence speaks a lot of sense there. You know, it's easy to look flexible. It's easy to look at your best uh, when you play against a team that allows you to do the things that you're trying uh, to accomplish in terms of tactics and formations and stuff like that. You know, you have to, you know, any competent game of football at the top level essentially has a dynamic where one team is trying to perpetuate something and the other team is trying to negate that. And I don't think West Ham did that very well. But at the same time, you know, there are positives for Liverpool. I think the, the focus here is uh, maybe you know, looking ahead to, to the to the overall project with Jurgen Klopp, uh, trying to be as flexible as possible and trying to experience as many systems as possible because there are a lot of things that you can do with this talented crop of players that Liverpool currently have. And if they can go back and forth from different different tactical systems, then they have as they, they give themselves more opportunities for success in the future as if they were just simply dependent on a four three three or a four four two diamond or whatever it is that they think their best system is. Huge problem for Liverpool as well is obviously they need to put more goals away and I think they um, it, that, that comes down to you're saying, to you're saying more having, goals away yeah I think they need to put more opportunities away I'm not talking obviously they won 4-1 on the weekend but I think too often Liverpool have created chances and gotten a shot on target which looks great on a graph um, but very often the shot's not going necessarily it flies over it goes right at the goalkeeper um, 
I, I still don't think Liverpool are putting enough away. And if, if their game plan is going to be to play this risky football, which it still is quite risky compared to Mourinho, um, or even maybe Pep Guardiola who tries to dominate in a different way, then they're going to have to put more away. And that comes down to Salah as well. It's great goals in the weekend, but um, you'd say other goalkeepers might handle and deal with those. Of course, elsewhere this weekend, Manchester United fell to a 1-0 defeat at Stamford Bridge. Dave, uh, obviously... Oh, hold on, hold on, Adam. Uh, I tried to un- unmute my mic and I cleared myself from the conversation, as always. What I wanted to say is, can we not give Jurgen Klopp some kudos for his zonal marking setup from corners? Because that first goal that they scored was a result of their system that they'd set in a zonal um, sort of formation. So... You know, the analysis is always good when you're hammering zonal marking, but can we just make take a moment to be like, yeah, that was good, Jürgen. Well done, Jürgen. You worked on that all week. Good you've, stuff, You've buddy. done it, Dave. You've given him the kudos. Fair play. Good. Excellent. Excellent. That goal was a quality goal. On match of the day, it was so reductionist. It was more like, oh, what have West Ham done wrong here? Oh, the, the, the players are too uh, high up the pitch. It's the trap. Blah, 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 it's blah. It's the trap you fall but into, the a... mistakes of the opposition as opposed to the, the pros of uh, the team yeah, in front of that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I just thought I'd give Jorgen Klopp a little shout-out because I don't give him many shout-outs Would you days. like to give Jose Mourinho some kudos? Would you like to give him some uh, some points for the way he set up his team at Chelsea? Dave, it was a 1-0 defeat in the end at Stamford Bridge. But initially, at least, Manchester United seemed much more attacking. We saw a much more open game, essentially, than we did against Liverpool. Although, yeah, once again, they failed to score away from home at, uh, at a big rival. Lack control is absolute rubbish. Rubbish from United, absolute rubbish. The players have got to be to blame here because they're not. Mourinho's not going to have gone through the Cesar Aspilicueta forward ball, and that obviously won the game for Flame and Chelsea. And it's just one of these things where if you if you go through stuff week after week after week and the players don't get it, then unfortunately you've got to look for new players because it was so blatantly obvious what was going to happen. So what you saying? I really think it was the players' fault, Dave. So who? So in, in terms of that, right? Well, you'd, be, yeah. you'd be instructed as part of that front three to close down Cesar Aspel Equator if he steps over the halfway line because of what he can do. It but, was but, so but, simple. But, look at, but I, I agreed with what you said initially, which was that the game had no control. But that, I, to me, that wasn't down to really either of the sets of players because it, it seemed like both coaches came out with the approach that they wanted the game to be open. They did nothing to negate. Each you see, I, I, I think that's. I don't think that's the, the case. I think Mourinho would have come with a plan to be tight, and United weren't tight, and that was. That's the what I was issue. expecting, but there was no, there was nothing that I saw. Exactly, that that that, from... that falls for me straight into the category of the players, not the manager, because Is Mourinho has shown this players? season. He's shown this season that he's defensive against the top six sides. I don't have a problem with that. But what United played, they played this open style, and that's what they shouldn't be doing against someone like Chelsea or hit on the counter attack. It just seems. It just seems like all the good work that's been done in the season previously, that one game has just been like, well, what was the point of playing defensively if you're going to try and go out at Stamford Bridge and get a win of some of the players, you know, maybe not following the correct tactical instructions? And it's just ridiculous. So, do you know, technically, you... technically, that's overcommitment uh, in, uh, in on the players' part, which is then not necessarily following Mourinho's system correctly. Mourinho is meticulous in his planning. He'll brief the players that Aspilicueta will get into that area, especially considering that if Dave knows it and Dave's not part of the analysis team at United, I guarantee that someone on the analysis team mm. at United will know that. And Mourinho briefs individually on players. We know this. So mm. he will have told those players, you have to be in that position. And in, in the Mourinho system, technically there's a player there who's overcommitted and then not been able to do their job properly. And we, and we can analyze it however you want, but Dave's right in this. Mourinho will be angry with that. 
because it, it, we can't analyze it from a, a fluid. It's not meant to be a fluid system at United on all fronts. Mm. It, so it, it, technically, someone's made a mistake there. Mm. And whether it's, you I would, know, it I would goes, disagree. But... It goes down to well, how, whoever yeah, didn't close that pass. Because, because I think, it, it, I think if you look at... You yeah, but the point is, he was left wide open to cross the ball into the box. Dave literally sat there and said, that's going to be a goal. He sat next right, to me and I'm not, said, that's I'm, not be a goal. I'm not talking about that specific situation. What I'm saying is that we talked about how Manchester United were more open in this game and how they, they there was no control in this game, right? So the reason that I've come to that conclusion is because obviously with the Mourinho system, we expect them not to press particularly high. They're a medium sort of block pressing team. They wait for the opposition to impose themselves on on you know their defensive formation and then they go after the press because it's more efficient to do it that way and that's the way that Mourinho likes to play it. In this in this game, the players were openly pressing higher. There was more space in midfield for Bakioko and Seth Fabregas to take advantage of. And after a certain amount of time, there are there are instances in certain games where yes, players are undisciplined and they can go after and they can go out of the the maybe the tactical instructions that they they've been told. But this was a consistent thing over the pretty much the first and second half where they were pressing much higher than they normally do. If, if after even you know the first time and Mourinho has a ton of opportunities to correct that by telling the players to do something differently, if after a certain amount of time he doesn't do anything and, and they don't okay. change their behavior, then I have to think that in this game, right. Mourinho simply wanted to be more open and that was the fallacy in the approach. But that, right, but, so, but so what you're the saying there is, yeah, you're instructing the players to press so they should have pressed Cesar Aspilicueta and, and, and he shouldn't have got into that position. It's the same thing. This is what I'm saying about the, the players have, 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 you know, real, have let themselves down in a way. Because either they haven't full, followed his instructions in closing them down from the front, or defensively they've been so open. You know, the market of the three centre-halves on Morata was pathetic. Who, you know, along with the ball coming in, it's... I was going to say, whose fault is that, Dave, then, for that goal? Who do you think wasn't doing their job in that situation, I, I, as instructed by Jose Mourinho? I think first you stop the cross and that doesn't happen, full stop. I think that's the big thing with that goal, just because of how it comes out of centre-half, picking up the ball, driving, and then playing a, a cross with no one really around him. I think you cut that out at a point, that stops it. But then again, if you're in a defensive phase and you've got three centre-halves, why is one of those centre-halves not picking up the opposition striker? You have the one striker. Do you think, I understand what you're saying, Dave, I appreciate what you're saying, but you're talking here about a lack of control in this game. Um, certainly was the case for Manchester United, perhaps you'd expect that away from home, but the fact that Chelsea had three central midfielders, United had two, Mkhitaryan ahead of them. No, it, was still, it was still a 3v3, it was a 3v3, well, don't get me wrong. In terms of Mkhitaryan know, in, against Yeah, it's a 3v3, three. so Mkhitaryan was instructed, I think this is one of, one of the tactical issues that Mourinho had was that he plays, you know, he goes for this 3-4-1-2 against 3-5-2s because he can negate their defensive midfielder. The issue with playing that against Chelsea is that they don't really build up from defensive midfield. So, yeah, you can stop Spurs playing. Yeah, you can stop Liverpool playing that way. Yeah, you can stop CSK Moscow playing that way. But you can't stop Chelsea playing that way because they almost bypass Kante. And also Kante in deep in midfield is quite good at spinning people and driving. What he's, what you kind of want Kante is you want Kante to have the ball in the deep areas. You're fine with that. You're okay with that. And again, that was you know a lack of reaction for Mourinho. Maybe that's the thing that I can criticise Mourinho is a lack of reaction in terms of how, right. how United set up. A big thing that I said before the game is that United need to be flexible between playing a back three and a back four. They weren't. With the selection of players, they couldn't transition from a back three to a back four because there was no one comfortable in that three-man they defense. Seem to change, they seem to change after conceding the goal, though, to more of a 4-3-3. Fellaini came on. They, they seem to look dead, more though. threatening. Game's dead. Like, game is so dead. In that, in that game, you, the first goal, you win the game because of the, two, the nature of the 
two teams. They are both very good defensive. They both play in three centre-halves. Whoever scores the first goal wins that. And that was the problem that Mourinho didn't get United in a position to to do that. Is that the major problem, Dave, that uh, you're saying it didn't really look like United were ever going to win this game and uh, they can't really afford to lose them when Manchester City, as we'll come on to, are now opening up this, this lead in the title race? So I don't think I don't think that's I think that's two sort of separate points in a way. Um, I think that United can't afford to lose one of the next four games. I think that's that's set in stone. But in terms of them losing against Chelsea away before from they home, face City, yeah, before they face City, they've. I think the big thing with that is that they've they've sort of lost to three points that City gained in a way. You know, if you directly compare the games, Chelsea away, City won one nil. United lost 1-0. Small margins. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the sort of going to be the deciding factor of this season is going to be small margins. And if United players can't really turn up, the big thing with United in the attacking sense, again, they were woeful. I think they created like one chance or something stupid in that second half um, in terms of like what they were doing well in the first half of the season. They were taking people on and, and dribbling at them, you know, running at them. United in that game completed one single dribble in 90 minutes of football which was Henrik Mkhitaryan, but at the same time, United aren't committing Chelsea players. They're not pulling them out of shape in an attacking sense. It, it, that's 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 kind of a separate issue to the defensive thing. Like If United were OK in defensive sense last yes, yesterday, they wouldn't have conceded that goal. And then it would have been nil-nil. And again, that would have been a pretty decent result, to be quite frank, in United's current state without Paul Pogba. A lot of United fans on social media uh, seem to be pointing to the absence of, of Paul Pogba, Dave, as one of the key issues in this game. But is that not is that not a real red flag in that Manchester United are seemingly so reliant upon the Frenchman that it all seems to fall apart if he's not there? Well, how much did United buy him for? Of course, <laughs> eighty-five but million quid. You surely they shouldn't be. Decent. Yeah, but surely they should be. No, able no, to I, cope I understand what you're it. saying. But then again, again, United lost Maron Fellaini. United were fine without Pogba when Fellaini was was fit and, and not injured. The difficulty started to come was when Mara and Fellaini got injured and United went for Ander Herrera and Herrera Matic doesn't work in midfield. Mm. They're far too similar in terms of what they want to do in a, two, in a, a deep pivot. So I, I think there's issues with United and I think I'm going to look at it this week after having like some date, some time off um, and look at the impact of Pogba and what he did in those opening games and, and look at what United are lacking. So I'll probably be on the YouTube channel Wednesday um, if you want to check that and hopefully I'll be in a better mood then. I would have had some sleep Yeah, <laughs> to be quite frank. Yeah, you sound quite downbeat about it all right now. I, I am, yeah. I was I was in um, obviously doing the kickoff with McKenna, Jordy, and you were doing the producing and yeah. then um, in the morning I, I, tr- I had trouble with the train so I had, I had like um, signaling failure on the way there so my train was delayed by two hours so I was like, oh bloody hell, all right. At least I've had that bit. Oh, um, which is not a nice thing to happen to anybody. But anyway, in terms of that, yeah, so we couldn't get a train back. All the trains were cancelled from London. Um, and I wanted to get back because my girlfriend had her first day at a new work, so I wanted to be here to be like, go on, you can do it type thing, motivational and stuff like that. Um, so I tried to get back and ended up meeting Chris Croft from Full Time Devils. He was down in London and me in house and got a lift back, so I ended up going to bed at like four o'clock. Bloody and I woke yeah. up this morning at nine. I'm pretty excited. I tired. see, so it was, a, it was a bad day in all. Yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a shit day. I'm going to be honest. Apart from the kickoff, the kickoff was really fun. Oh, the kickoff was great. The rest of it was shit. Uh, as soon as I started, started, started thinking oh, about like, United losing, that was when I was like. But when we were in the motion of just talking about it, it was all right. 
Um, yeah. We should probably talk a little bit about Chelsea as well. Nico felt like a big win for Antonio Conte. Still these question marks over his future. He seemed to drop David Luiz before the game. The reports today are that Luiz seemed to uh, seemed to uh, take some issue with Conte's tactics ahead of the game and therefore he was dropped. Um, Conte insisting it was purely tactical. But nonetheless, it feels like a big win for the Italian. Yeah, but I don't know if it would necessarily uh, continue to be that way. There are still a lot of issues at Chelsea that we, well, you know, were subject to in the the Roma game just a few days prior to this mm-hmm. one. Um, but it was, st- you know, it was still a good win. I think there was a lot of space in midfield for specifically Bakayoko to take advantage of. Um, and obviously, he, you know, he's sort of similar to Nabi Keita in the way that he likes to take on players in central midfield areas. And he seems to be really, really talented at that. And I don't think he's had the ability uh, to do that as much. Obviously, changing in stature from the likes of Monaco to a Chelsea or a league champion Chelsea that, you know, will be expected to dominate the ball. So obviously, in a lot of the games, there are there is less space for him to do those sort of things. But in this game, since there was space, uh, he could get into really good positions uh, and, you know, be the player that he was last year. Um, but still, you know, like I said, there are a lot of issues at Chelsea that I think need uh, mm. be working out and, and a win against a Manchester United team that were, in my opinion, not so organised uh, is not great. I think that was a weird thing. Roma absolutely bad at Chelsea. If United had even copied or tried to emulate that approach, it would have been a different game. Well, that, 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 that was my argument before. That's why I thought it was so weird because it seemed like a game that was just perfectly set up for Mourinho to come in and you know do exactly what he's good at doing be no risk risk averse you know sit deep and and you know enact that deeper pressing strategy and really break on Chelsea because even Roma who didn't do it as well as they could have done absolutely wrecked Chelsea by doing some semblance of that and United are much are a much better team than Roma so that's why it was so confusing to me because like I said before the the indicators pointed to it being uh, uh, United uh, a game that United could really thrive in but obviously it wasn't Again, Maro and Fellaini, Paul Pogba, very important to play in the style <laughs> that Roma played. Serious, I'm not. I'm, I'm being serious. I'll, I'll explain on my YouTube channel. It, it's. I do. I know. I'm not I, joking here. This is no, a, no. This I know. Is I know. Maro and Fellaini is. Not, I can see how important Maro and Fellaini is, but at the same time, I do find it quite bizarre that uh, maybe not in that respect, but certainly yesterday in those latter stages, chucking on Fellaini oh, and going long. On. I, I, I have a, the, I have a the, question the for Dave from that concerning just crap. Uh, Pogba. Go on. Well, I, I, obviously, I would agree with Adam, with the sentiment Adam presented that, you know, Marlon Fellaini is an important player when trying to enact a specific type of game style that maybe panders towards their performances against the top six. And I think, but I think Paul Pogba's importance to the team matters much more, not only in the games against the top six, I think that matters too, but specifically against maybe the Huddersfields of the world, the teams that need breaking down. Um, yeah, would you agree I, with that sentiment? Or No. I don't think so. I think there's there's two different Paul Pogba's. I think you play a Paul Pogba against Huddersfield to control the game, to unlock defences. I think you play a Pogba in a more pressing, energetic role against the bigger sides um, to, to break. I think that's the big thing with Pogba. It's that counter-attack ability, ability to carry the ball that we saw at the start of the season that United have lacked, really. Um, you know, you think about Henrik Mkhitaryan, and I think the big thing with him as well is his, his, his form's been really conditioned on when Paul Pogba's played. Not just Paul Pogba playing the ball to him, but United breaking, Pogba drawing players in and then literally playing it to Mkhitaryan, who plays the final pass. And I think that's a big thing that's been lacking for United is that also not just Pogba in a deep deep area, Pogba in a high area when he when he can run and when he can you know open his stride up and his gate up and he can start accelerating into into space. So I think it's, it's sort of a duality with Paul Pogba that United have not have struggled to score goals. But being second in the league, having the second best defence, sorry, the best defence and the second best attack, 
without Paul Pogba is a pretty oh, decent place to be for Man United, uh, to be honest. Dave, I mean, finally on this game, what did you make of the the sort of battle between Morata and Lukaku, the battle of these two strikers that was, was hyped up beforehand and seemingly Morata uh, won during the game with that fantastic header? One was supplied, the other wasn't. If you're a striker that isn't supplied versus a striker, you are, you know, it's as simple as that. I think they're both wonderful forwards. Morata, that header was fantastic. And again, a bit lax in United in terms of defensive sense, but he's really good. Uh, you know, in terms of Lukaku, I just think he was really starved of possession in good areas. United gave him the ball in, in areas where he sort of had to do, you know, like the goal that he created for Marcus Rashford last weekend, was it, or the weekend before? Um, like giving him ball in, in just areas where you, you don't want Lukaku, you want to be feeding him when he's 1v1 on a centre-half or he's clean for own goal. So again, it's United failing to create chances without Paul Pogba and it is a bit of an issue for Mourinho at the moment. Uh, finally on Chelsea as well, we should say, adding to the sense of unease almost around the club is the fact that the Chelsea technical director, Michael Manalo has quit today <laughs> after 10 years at the club. I think uh, we we'll He's quit. Yes, That's I think, fantastic news. I mean, I'll say for one, Rory Jennings from the Chelsea uh, CFC Fan TV is, uh, is delighted. I think it's fair to say. Mm. But obviously someone who is seen as, uh, as a close ally, Roman Abramovich, someone who reportedly Antonio Conte wasn't too fond of. So uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this in the coming days if we see the fallout from that. Um, that defeat though for Manchester United uh, as Dave says uh, they do have the best defence in the league they have scored the second most goals but uh, they're still eight points behind Manchester City now after their win over Arsenal on the weekend 3-1 it finished Nico um, is that is it 52 goals I think in all competitions now for Manchester City yeah yeah, not too, too badly uh, what did you make of this game then? I mean it, it seemed predictable almost um, you know, I'm always nervous to play Arsenal because I think um, as much as we talk about Arsene Wenger not being modern and not being uh, contemporary enough in his tactics, he, he does seem to understand uh, how to negate some of the more complex tactical ideas or at least some of the more complex attacking ones. Um, and, you know, Arsenal actually came out with a game plan that I think is is the key to beating Manchester City. And as, as Lawrence maybe asked me a couple podcasts ago, you know, how would one go about beating this Manchester City side if I had to think about it. And I've been thinking about it for a while, and I think this is the the, the second leg against Napoli and this uh, some of what Arsenal did in this game would sort of be the, the perfect blueprint as to how to beat Manchester City. And basically what they did, you know, they held a really high line and they pressed really aggressively in the first phase of build-up. Um, and specifically, I think they targeted Fernandinho to some extent because, uh, you know, as we talked about the, the players at Manchester City needing time to get familiar with some of Pep Guardiola's uh, you know, tactics and, and the things that he likes the players to do on the ball. And for Nadinho is really the key uh, for Manchester City playing through pressure in the, you know, initial phase of the buildup. And sometimes the, whether it be the left back or right back can deliver a pretty harsh pass to Fernandinho and, and it can be difficult to control. And then by that time, a player is closing in on him. And so for the first 15 minutes or so, I think Arsenal were pressing pretty aggressively. And then they had to sort of lay off a little bit because you cannot press you know, go all out for an entire half, you're going to completely tire yourself out. And I think that's sort of where City started to see some success. Um, also, City were have been using sort of long ball tactics to back up the, or, or push back the the opposition's high line. Um, 
And when teams, and I think a perfect example of this is probably the Stoke game where City scored seven. Uh, when teams sort of sit in that halfway house and give too much time uh, to the players on the ball, like Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva in deeper areas, and then they're still playing sort of a high line, and there's at least like 20 yards of backspace between the defensive line and the goalkeeper. Um, that's enough space for Raheem Sterling and, and Aguero and, and Leroy Sané to take advantage of. And when you don't have any pressure on those players, they can uh, put you know really really good balls over the top. Um, and that's obviously when City started to to have more success. Um, as far as some of the things that Arsenal did that I think were uh, you know good ideas in in practice, but or in in theory, but not necessarily in practice, uh, was pushing Coughlin in, in the center of that defensive three. I think the idea there was um, was you know if you want to play back three, you want to be aggressive. Um, but as we see from the first goal, Lauren Koscielny did not communicate with him well enough. And, you know, Kevin DeBurna glanced past uh, Aaron Ramsey and there was no pressure on the shot. Um, I tell you, you I, can, Dave, I can hear you tittering in the background there. Um, is, it, is, it, is, the, is the point, though, Dave, that uh, as Nico is making them, perhaps this was the right approach. Is it the personnel that were wrong for Arsenal there? Coquelin? Why are you playing a back three when you don't have three centre-halves? Like, what are you doing? You you could do it, right? You could do it when you're Pep Guardiola and your team dominates the ball and you've got players that are so talented, like a Sergio Busquets that could play as a centre-half because he's pretty much a complete footballer. When you're throwing someone in like Frances Coquelin, uh, probably he can tackle and he he can read the game all right. And in terms of his passing, it's, you know, there's a a ceiling on what he's going to do. But to field him as a defensive defensive centre-half against Manchester City that looked to spin you and play balls in between the channels, you've got to be absolutely bonkers. Like You've got to honestly think that this system is the be-all that end-all of life. This is going to win Arsenal the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that experiment worked particularly well, Dave. Do you think, uh, as well as that mistake potentially not starting Alexandra Lacazette was uh, was an issue. Arsenal fans not happy about that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a slightly more interesting one in a way because I can kind of understand why he's not gone with that, why he wants to go with Alexis Sanchez because he'll do more work in a defensive sense. But at the same time, we saw what Lacazette did when he was on the pitch. It, and it's again, it's frustrating for Arsenal fans because they've got these talented lads and it just seems like Wenger's not getting it right at the moment. And Lacazette came on, scored a good, really good goal. And that's what City kind of needed. You needed to trouble City with a bit of Lacazette in that channel. So, again, it very frustrating. Very, very frustrating for Arsenal fans. I saw uh, Guardiola after the game, Nico, uh, talk about you know how great it was for Arsenal to have that option on the bench, to have Lacazette there. Of course, they had Giroud and Walcott as well. Uh, a strong bench there. Do you, think, do you think from those comments that, Guardiola would like to have more options in an attacking sense on the bench. Of course, Manchester City are fantastic in attack. As we mentioned at the top there, they've scored 52 goals, I think, in all competitions. Um, but to have someone maybe like Alexis Sanchez come in January, do you think he fits into that squad? Do you think he adds those options uh, to this squad? Um, I, we've talked about this a couple of times. I'm not the biggest proponent of, of Alexis Sanchez joining Manchester City because, in my opinion, his you know, pressing actions and some of the things he does, it looks fine and it looks like he does things that affect things, but he's actually sort of pulls the the defensive. Um, he, he essentially messes up Arsenal's defensive formation by, pre- you know, pressing like a headless chicken. He just runs around and looks like he's doing something, but he, he's actually doing much more harm than he is good. Um, so I don't know if that would be the best option for Manchester City, who I, I think if there's one 
big criticism of this Manchester City team for me, and Chris Chris and I talked about this recently, I think on the last podcast, um, is that since their counter-pressing actions so far this season have been so successful, and they're so aggressive in those, in those actions, sometimes when teams have the ability to play through it, or at least play through a bit of pressure, um, and have like a little bit of a lull between, you know, the, the different actions and different players going to the ball, um, City can, you can play through them really easily, because essentially you have I think in this game and in a couple games prior, City set set up sort of in a four four two defensive formation, and so we're playing Kevin De Bruyne and 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 um in sort of like a central midfielder role, and he doesn't actually do that much uh, defensive work positionally, and so it can be really easy to play through Manchester City, um if their counter if their initial counter pressing actions don't work, um so I you know I think. If we were to add Alexis Sanchez to that situation, a player that could further disrupt uh, the defensive formation, um, it might not be the best idea. But at the same time, you know, with the injuries and with the flexibility that he brings, I don't think it would be an unwelcome addition to Manchester City. As I mentioned, Lawrence, there, City eight points ahead. I believe their points tally of 31 with their goal difference of 31 is the best ever start to a Premier League season yeah. after 11 games for any club. Of course, they're on course to score something like 130 odd goals this season, which would better the highest ever Premier League goal scoring tally by Carlo Ancelotti's Chelsea in 2010. Can this side be stopped, Lawrence? I mean, everyone's talking about this weekend. Man City have already won the title. Uh, I think they, they there are ways. Of, I think Nico's already spoken about ways of stopping them. I think uh, maybe it was a bit of a false flag with um, the way that Pep Guardiola kept talking about how Napoli are the best team he's played. Um, they are literally one of the best teams he's played, but I don't think that that necessarily means that they're the best team that they've played and therefore are good at challenging City. Um, I think you'll probably have to come up against a more defensive style, a style that's much better at breaking style, like Nico's already tactically worked out um they're beatable because um i think at some point you're going to find you're going to come up against a, a superior side some of the sides they're playing week in week out in the premier league um and i i still think that there are going to be difficult times for the city mainly because there'll be a, a fixture pile up there'll be a fixture backup um and at the same time i think the culture that pep guardiola um often brings to a club is fantastic but that they do tend to find that there are lapses during the season. And I know that those come uh, later on rather than early on for City because, of course, he's a very inspirational player. Can I also say, just to, to add to Lawrence's point there, like this Manchester City team are very beatable. Like they're very good in attack and obviously they've been amazing this season, but they are like all this talk that, you know, they could go unbeaten the entire season. Several players have come out and, and sort of not debunked that theory, but said, you know, it's not necessarily within the realm of possibility considering how competitive uh, all of the competitions that they're involved in. But, you know, like I said, it's Arsenal and Napoli sort of combined provide a blueprint to if you're trying to beat City in that certain way, which I think is is very possible. If if Arsenal had taken those opportunities that they won the ball uh, back high up the pitch a little bit better and maybe put put some of them away and then were able to 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 enact a more defensive approach in the game, I think that is that is a blueprint for Manchester City to be beaten. This this team is by no way, you know, unbeatable. They're very good, but you know, they're not unbeatable. Well no kingdom. Shall we talk about Everton? A uh, pretty remarkable game this weekend at home at Goodison Park against Watford. They were 2-0 down 
in the second half, uh, but came back to win 3-2, an injury time penalty from Leighton Baines, and of course Tom Cleverley missing in the 100th minute, I believe, of this game. Um, yep. A big win for David Unsworth, Lawrence. Uh, may no longer be David Dunsworth, you know, very good. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but they're now, what, they're only two points. David Funsworth. Yeah, they're only two points clear of the relegation zone, as it is. Uh, but a massive win for them. I mean, we're not sure if David Dunsworth... <laughs> David Dunsworth. He might be more <laughs> like sort started... of David Hemsworth. But you it know, looks it, like, mm, despite yeah. this big win, I mean, which of course came by virtue of Tom Clevey missing a penalty in the final seconds, it looks like he might not be given the job. Um, it looks like Sam Allardyce could be coming in, according to reports today, potentially with Craig Shakespeare as his assistant manager, the dream Brilliant. team, if you will, Lawrence. A little bit confusing as to why you'd be coming to me ahead of Dave here, as Dave's, um, Dave's covered in his own semen right now with that idea. Um, but but part, of the, part of the issue is uh, with auditioning a manager over two games, and I know that there was a lot of support for him, and I imagine this is more of a PR exercise and legitimising um, Mr. Funsworth as a manager. Um, it, obviously, no board is legitimately going to say you have two games uh, go and impress us especially not at an institution like Everton so I think it makes sense that they would bring in uh, a manager who's reputable who's also uh, at least on the pitch and also able to bring in a sense of stability very often that he's um, able to make players who look incredibly exciting um, every now and again exhibit that but also become very solid players he's going to bring um, something that I think Everton historically are quite proud of is that um, they, they used to be known as the Science Club. Uh, or the, I think it might have been The Scientist. I can't really remember the exact so, name. I, it, it's in a book somewhere. What? No, genuinely, uh, they did. And, uh, God. What? I ju- I, 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 so just, like, I'm just amazed by this information. I'm loving it. Well, because they used... There wasn't like a sort of a... a re- like, basically, they, they saw themselves as a bit of a science team. Uh, like, they, they, they weren't sort of doing chemistry and stuff out on the pitch, but... Um, they saw themselves as more uh, technically advanced than other people. And so I think they, um, the, the likes of Sam Allardyce fit perfectly into the club for that reason. I can look it up. I'll look it up. Because otherwise it just Please do. Like um, do you think, I mean, it remains to be seen if Sam Allardyce will come in, Dave. Whether that's, uh, whether that's a particularly good appointment. I mean, obviously he's been brought in, uh, you'd assume because of his experience in relegation struggles, as it were. Um but I thought I'd, I'd mention Steve Walsh, someone who's brought into the, the club. The team was soon to be dubbed the School of Science after their methodical approach in, yeah. in the tradition of the good. Everton team in the 1920s. Sam Allardyce is returning almost 100 <laughs> years after he originally appeared in Everton. He's bringing it back. He's bringing it back. Um, it's or, like Halloween. Dave, I wanted to talk about Steve Walsh because this is a point that uh, Gab Marcotti brought up recently uh, on the Times Football Podcast. Great podcast. Stuck on that, by the way, Adam. Uh, you, you, I you mean, doubted me. I just enjoyed it. I just enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> do you think Steve Walsh has gotten away with one here, Dave, because he was someone who's brought in from yeah. Leicester, obviously, to improve the squad, to essentially improve their, their prospects of challenging the top four, challenging for Europe. Of course, Ronald Koeman is the man who got a lot of the blame, a lot of the flack there, but surely Steve Walsh should be taking some of the, the criticism here. Yeah, I think both of them deserve it. I think Steve Walsh got away with pretending that he signed N'Golo Kante and Riyad Mahrez and we've kind of found that it takes more than just one man, one man to make a scouting team. And it's simple. Like, if you were to do that properly, you would have brought the whole Leicester City scouting team over to, over to Everton. But bringing one man is pretty much redundant because, again, you don't know who's 
making the calls. And obviously, he's done terribly in the window. He's done absolutely atrocious. We mentioned it many, many times. It's signing someone like Guilford Sigurdsson for forty-five million is crazy. You, you lot didn't believe me at the start when I said that, but it's, uh, it's, it's just ludicrous. <laughs> didn't that we? Is so didn't much we? Money. I, 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 I echoed that. Anyway. I'm pretty sure we all agreed. I, I remember. No, I remember. I remember maybe maybe Nico. Nico was like, yeah, he's probably one of the best ball-playing midfielders oh in world football. Lord. I was like, are you mad, bro? This guy can't even complete a pass in the final third. Forget to go back and find some they, audio they, evidence. They've had, had amnesia. I think you can go fa- go back on the Statman <laughs> Dave podcast and find that I was saying exactly the opposite. But yeah. Yeah, good podcast. Uh, you got proof for everything. Um, should we finish up the Premier League? It still uh, exists. Still round exists. up here by talking. I want to talk a little bit about Tony Pulis because I mean we're talking at the top of the show about Billich being sacked. Looks like Tony Pulis could be the next manager to be handed his uh, handed his P forty five under pressure as the West Brom coach here. Dave, uh, two wins in his last twenty games as the manager. Magic. Uh, obviously, obviously a one nil defeat to Huddersfield this weekend despite playing against Huddersfield uh, who only had 10 men for, uh, for half an hour of the game. Uh, it's not looking good for uh, for Big Tony at the moment, is it? No, I don't think so. I think Tony's going for a bit of a rough patch but you know we can all hope that Tony will get some more clean sheets soon and score some goals with his defenders. That's what we'd like to see. Uh, it's just going to be a bit difficult. I think West Brom They've got a little bit. They they want a bit more, I think, than Tony Pulis, and it's weird because Tony Pulis is a great fit for West Brom in terms of you know the size of the club and what they should be aiming for in the Premier League and that stability. Um, and Pulis could bring that. So if they do sack him, for me that's a bit a bit of a mistake. Pulis is never going to be relegated. Full stop. He gets his forty points. Full. You know he, he knows how to do that, and that's what he'll do. Be it getting his points now or at the end of the season, he will get forty points. So again, sacking him would be a bit silly, and I think it'd be a step back for West Brom when they 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 look like they're. You know, making some good signings. You think about the players that Pulis has attracted to West Brom. There's some really good players in there. You think Krajovac. You think the likes of um, Oli Burke that they signed for uh, from Leipzig. There's there's players there that came probably because Tony Pulis was there as a manager. You know, it does sound a bit silly, but Pulis would have been the guy convincing them to join. So you've got to sort of think a bit about the the bigger picture for West Brom before they make a sort of a drastic decision and, and sack the maestro. Would you agree with that, Nico? I mean, we've seen how the Current bottom six or so, uh, Palace have sacked their manager already, West Ham, Everton as well, uh, Bournemouth, Eddie Howe's under pressure of course, Swansea uh, not doing too great, only on eight points after 11 games, uh, West Brom as well in that mix. Of course, Tony Pulis has a function, he does a job uh, and there is the argument you made that you know uh, maybe there's uh, there's more that West Brom could aspire to be, but do you think he's the man to, to save them this season? As Dave says, he is the man to get them to that magic 40 points. Yeah, I think give him a bit more time, you know. He's been at the club for a long time, but I don't think Tony Pulis gets enough credit uh, for what he does tactically. Um, I would say that, um, you know, he, he I, I would say that if he had a more, I'd be interested to see if he had a more talented group of players at his disposal at, uh, at West Brom, what he could do uh, with those sort of uh, players because I think he like I said he doesn't get enough credit and he's going through a rough patch right now but I think he, he would be able to right the ship and as opposed to sacking Tony Pulis and then bringing a manager that you don't really know could enact the same you know type of success that he's had with those specific players um, I think it's better just to stick with the manager and let him work out what he needs to work out right now I, I also think he, he, he's a, obviously he sticks around for a very long time at a club and sometimes things run its course. Things run their course. Um, you know, Pulis is a fairly 
um, constant manager in a sense at a club. Um, and I, I think sometimes you just find that that constant uh, aspect that in the end that runs out. And sometimes, uh, like, like I think we found at Stoke, the team do need to move on. They need to be built up by another manager. But there'll probably be another manager that builds back on the back of what Pulis has done. Before we go then, any other business, guys? Anything else from this weekend's footballing action you'd like to mention? Uh, I'd like to point out... Uh, I don't know if people saw this. I'm not going to spoil it, but all I'll say is go on Twitter, go on Google and type in Robin Zentner, the Mainz goalkeeper, who this weekend did something quite unbelievable, something that's never, I don't think it's ever been seen before in football. I highly recommend. How do you think has that happened before? Well, not exactly not, it wasn't just not kicking a ball. He, uh, he tried to kick the penalty spot, Lawrence. That's never been done before. Yeah. You're telling me that's never been done? Well, I mean, he tried to kick the penalty spot mainly because he looked up in the way that a confident goalkeeper would and the ball continued to roll. It was misplaced him. confidence. It was misplaced confidence. And was it misplaced or was it just... At, at, least, it didn't, at, at least it didn't result in a goal. Mm. I mean, it's still I mean, it could incredibly embarrassing regardless did. of whether but, you know, he conceded or not. Um, but guys, do go and check out that game. I highly recommend it. Uh, Lawrence, uh, there's been some nice kits... Dropping, as the kids say. There's some great World Cup kits. Great World Cup kits. Uh, Adidas dropped, uh, I think, seven or eight World Cup kits over the last 48 hours or so. Um, You see Mexico, you can see (sighs) Colombia. Colombia is a real retro, nice-looking kit. A lot of people going on about this Germany kit. Some people like it. It's monochrome, so it is just black and white, uh, whereas it it sort of hints at a throwback to an old Germany kit. Oh, it's clearly Um, the best kit in the collection, I'd argue. It's fantastic. I kind of like, like Spain, um, but I think I, I see what you're saying. And then uh, Alvaro Morata looks good in the Spain kit. And then there's also the Belgium kit, which is nice. Uh, Belgium have almost like right in the center of their chest, uh, the Belgium logo. Or Belgium mm. symbol. And then uh, it looks a bit like a winter slash Christmas jumper. Yeah. There, the rest of the kit, which is a bit unusual. But it looks good. And the guys in the picture are just having the best time. It just like, oh, it's, yeah, something really funny is going on. I can't work out what, but it's funny. Have you, uh, on a sort of related note, uh, a kit that was getting a lot of love this week was the uh, the Cameroon kit. I believe it's for the 20th anniversary of Puma and Cameroon, sort of their, their partnership. I love that kit. It's kind of the, the lion. It's kind of like a lion graphic, I think. It's, it does look, it looks pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a classic um, I think it's, it's almost, it almost feels like a classic Puma kit at this point, isn't it? Oh, it looks great. It were, Cameroon have uh, had some really vivid kits down the years. I think Puma have also done some really great iconic um, Afghan and African kits. Uh, it was, it, I think the badge, is, it's just a combination of everything. They've got that roaring line on the front and then a kind of almost Transformers-like uh, logo printed, I think it is with the mouth of the line right in the center. So that was a nice one. There's also the Juventus kit, obviously, that costs £200 mm-hmm. or £160, it's which nice Juventus kit. released and then played. It looks good on the pitch. I think mm-hmm. it will also look good in real life. I didn't, I didn't manage to get one, um, mainly because I thought I needed too much pay for a T-shirt. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> That's fair. It's a lot. A lot of money for a t-shirt. Yeah, it's, know, a lot pounds. it's a lot of money spent on anything, but yeah, just one, I think McLovin, I don't know, can't justify that. <laughs> Did you just turn into the uh, the professor from uh, The Simpsons? You yeah. Know, oh, McLovin, McLovin. <laughs> yes, yes I did. Uh, before we go, uh, Nico, any other business? Yeah, Napoli were 
not returning to great form this weekend, unfortunately, like mm-hmm. I mentioned maybe in the previous podcast. Uh, Fauzi Gulam, which is their first-choice left back, suffered a full uh, ACL rupture in his left leg, and Napoli suffered as a, as, a, as a consequence of that this weekend. I think they had their lowest expected goal rating for um, probably for the past two years. I think they've been averaging over 1.5, if not more, and they registered a 0.7 this weekend. Um, and obviously, you know, he's such a key player to to their style of football, him bombarding down the left-hand side and linking up with Mark Hamsik and uh, Lorenzo Insigne that, you know, it obviously showed this weekend. So I'd be curious to see how they, how Murcia Sarri specifically copes with that um, because he, he does offer a lot both defensively and offensively on that left-hand side. Um, and replacing him with Mario Rui or Christian Maggio is simply not going to cut it. Uh, so I'd be interested to see if if they go for a replacement or if there's someone uh, in the Napoli Youth Academy as Zielinski and, and Diawara have stepped up, um, if there's someone at left-back that can do a similar job. Hmm. Well, that's it then, guys, for the Weekend Review podcast. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Until Thursday, when we'll be back with the Q&A as always. Nico, where can the listeners, where can the whole find you? They can find me sporting the new Cameroon kit, because I think I'm going to get one. Really? Good shout. Is that £165, or is it a bit more reasonable? Don't care. Any price. Worth, worth any price. Any price. You know, you know I'm just looking you know? now. They have they have had some amazing Cameroon kits in the past. So history, history, right there. Uh, Lawrence, where can the people find you? You're gonna be wearing some sort of limited edition or otherwise jersey. I think I'm gonna buy. I genuinely uh, think I'm gonna buy the Columbia kit. Uh, Columbia. Nah. Wow. Spain. Spain, Colum- I might go. I might go. A tr- I might go triple A Corona and go uh, Spain, uh, Germany, and Colombia because I need a kit re up. Because you need, just need kits. You can't, you can't have too many kits. Uh, Dave, where can people find you? Nowhere. I'm going to be asleep for the next two days. Mm. Good. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, I might get you that Germany. Them, Dave. I might get that Germany kit. You know. It's and get a Der Kaiser printed on the back like yeah. the loser you are. Yeah, I didn't get that. I have. I do have a Germany shirt with Der Kaiser on the back of it, printed. But it wasn't me that got that printed. I like to point out that would be a pretty should, bold. Should you, say, should you say that on on like a in like a public space space where people can people can associate the fact that you have had that printed on a kit and that you wear it? Or? I I didn't get it printed. I'm, that's what I'm trying to point out here. Oh, who 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 got? That would be a bold move for me to do that. Um, just some people. Used, just some people I used to work with who just have an immense amount of respect for me you know so, um, because that would mean that surely that does that mean to the king right something like that you know i mean i don't want to make a yeah. deal about yeah. it if you had a, but, uh, personally, if you personally had have had that yeah, that would be an insane <laughs> i don't think i could pull out so, not many thing, people could pull off not many people could pull off writing the king on the back of their shirt but um yeah we are competing in the opta uh quiz this week oh we um, it's going to be great. Yeah, we're competing in the... Well, you, you know this. You say uh, we're we, competing in the unfortunately, opposition. it's probably out of all the front three, it's the two worst people to compete in it, me and you. If Nico is there, is there least so we might have a chance. Yeah. But, I mean, it's probably the, the, the two worst choices. But, you know, hopefully there's free drinks. Is there free drinks or something? Uh, free drinks, free food. Um, free... Oh, Dave's already gone out the corner. He's furious. I remember uh, yeah. going um, Right, oh, guys. Loads thanks. of free booze, Boltwood. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then, enjoy your weeks. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 